Hello and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, the podcast where we talk about the things that plants are doing in the world around us and near us and stuff like that. <laughs> um, last week we were actually off. We're sorry we didn't announce that we were off. It was a bit of a last minute thing. Yoram was once again dying. Yeah. Um, he has caught another bug from his multiple offspring. And I think he lost his voice this time. So yes, I was I was unable. I mean, I've usually our listeners they just have to endure when I'm sick and I I sound super nasal even more than usual, and then mm. they just have to deal with that. Uh, but last week I literally couldn't speak. I would it would have been an hour of me coughing. I mean, it would be an hour of me monologuing and nobody really needs that. I think that's the main <laughs> the main issue was not you not speaking. It was that I would just fill in the gaps and. Everybody yeah. just said no. <laughs> yeah, the computer said no. And so, yeah, we last minute um, decided not to do this. But now I'm better. Mm-hmm. I, I took lots of fancy medicine. I had a powder inhaler, which I never had before. I think that was very Germany. fancy. It has like a little counter on it. And it literally gamified the process of taking medication enough for me to see like the little counter go down to enjoy That's inhaling That's not what you want. That you... <laughs> I mean, are you supposed to... I've always heard that you shouldn't... Like, medicine should taste disgusting so that you don't enjoy it. Because then getting better is a little treat. Like, <laughs> that you don't have to take the medicine anymore. I mean, medicine... Many many medicines are already quite addictive. So I'm not sure if, like, game of... Like, I've had a morphine drip and I got to, like, push the little button and I would get a little shot, shot of morphine. Yeah, maybe don't gamify morphine <laughs> or saying. nose drops that, that, make, that get you addicted. Um, but this one... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's addictive. It's something that helps my lungs to not be inflamed. And it worked very well. It had a little counter. And it wasn't a pleasant experience to take the medicine because you have to take long breaths, which if you are coughing quite a bit is hard. And then uh, you have to wash your mouth immediately afterwards because you want the stuff in the lungs, but not on any of your of your, um, <clears throat> of your skin or your, what's it? Like, I don't know what the word is for, the soft tissue inside your mouth. You don't want any of the medication on that. So you have to do long breath, not swallow the whole time, and then immediately rinse your mouth. So I think it's fair that it's a little gamification in there to make the whole experience fun enough that I actually do it for the entire time that I have to do the treatment so my lungs get better. So um, okay, I'm, I, yeah. I'm happy about a little counter. And it felt it felt really sci-fi. You do like a little click-clack movement with it, and then it's loaded, and then you inhale, and then it's empty, and then you have to reload it again, and the counter goes down, and then it tells you when it's over. And then you... I actually don't know why the counter is there. I guess maybe you don't realize when it's empty, and it's, it's to avoid just sucking I... on an empty plastic <laughs> container for a while. I honestly have no idea what you're talking about. I don't understand why you want powder in your lungs. And I also suspect that this is like something that's only exciting because 90% of the medicine in your country is tea-based. So you're just like <laughs> yeah. fascinated to have something that like you actually take and don't just drink as a hot beverage. It's suddenly a new it, experience. It was, it was really exciting. I got real antibiotics when I went to the doctor. <laughs> not, not No sugar or tea or a promise of it will be fine later. No, real antibiotics. This thing that I have to inhale into my lungs and actual codeine to stop the coughing, mm-hmm. that's, it was like Christmas for me. So <laughs> All the drugs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, kids don't do drugs. I, I had to take them, so I got better, and mm-hmm. now I'm not taking them anymore, um, but... Well done. <laughs> but it was, I was, <laughs> I was really actually relieved when when I went to the doctor and I got real 
drugs and then they also immediately helped. I got so mm. much better immediately after taking them, which is that, obvious. That will happen if there's active ingredients involved <coughs> instead yeah. of like... But most of the time, as, as you have experienced more than me even, um, you get a herbal infusion and then... Or maybe like some over-the-counter regular gumdrops to help with the cough. And I said, you're on, <laughs> you're on your own. Good luck. Good, good luck. Um, yeah. <laughs> How, what have you done in the last two weeks? Like, wh Were your weeks more exciting than my playful medication? I can't even remember. So one thing I wanted to mention is I, I mean, this is not even worth mentioning. I got bullied into buying apple flavored tea. I went to a tea store, like a fancy one in London, and I've never seen somebody so excited by tea, but she just talked. She was so excited about it. I got overwhelmed and I just like couldn't engage. I mean, I, social times is still hard. I think I'm still recovering from like being in my house and talking to my house plants for a lot. Um, so I just let the guy I'm with field the questions while I sort of like stood awkwardly at the back and I went home with tea I didn't want and that was it's like it's apple tea and she just kept on going on about how apple tea is so good and that also you can add apple juice to the tea and I just don't understand why that's should be a thing I don't think it is a thing I think she just really likes Apple I think she was getting paid by Big Apple she also mentioned how the tea store they want to be in the Big Apple so I think there was this whole Apple thing going on and there was like my brain was doing that kind of beautiful minds trying to link all the, the Apple pro I was like Apple, Apple, <laughs> Apple and then I, I went away buying like spending five pounds on Apple tea and it was confusing and overwhelming um, <laughs> also on the weekend I went to the slightly more calm um Future is female. Very briefly, only there was oh, a couple of people, or one person, or a couple of people, um, women playing uh, music composed by female composers in the conservatory in the Barbicans. It's like a public um, indoor conservatory here in London. And that was kind of nice. It's like plants and piano music, very soothing. Hmm. I did have some questions about... This is me being overly critical. If you If you say the future is female... Does that mean now won't be female? Like, is that sort of one of those things where, like, okay, but like, the future will be female. We promise, like, the future is female. Is that saying not now? Is that one of those things where, by saying the future is female, we've accidentally implied that the present definitely won't be? Yep. How far I, in the future? When yep, is the future? Exactly. I think that's that's the point where it comes down to is the future tomorrow or next week or next year. Um, then I could actually agree with it but because by most standards right now, you can't really make the case that we live in a matriarchal society. So It doesn't have <clears throat> to say that the future involves only females or all females having power. It's just, I mean, as the future of females also vague. It just kind of made me think of like the, the wording of that. But it was International Women's Day yesterday or a couple of days ago when this comes out. So happy International Women's Day to all women yeah. and non-binary folks and allies and everybody who wants equality and equity. Yes. Go you. Thanks for not being the worst and doing the bare minimum. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, and the other thing I wanted to mention, and I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast before, but Yarm, you can tell me because it's the German word, Unkenreflex. Unkenreflex? Do you know reflex? what that is? Yeah. Do you know what that is? Maybe. I mean, I know what Unken is, which What's means Unken? Um, speaking bad of the future. where And it's sort of superstitious where you say... Um, oh, don't don't mention it. Uh, don't don't speak bad of the future because then it will become true, and that's that's what Unken is. And this so, is this is awkward because I don't know now if Yarm is bad at German or if Wikipedia is. 
Um, that's not what Wikipedia tells me. It's actually unke as a word, not unken. It's uh-huh. not a verb, but it's a a genus of toads. Yeah, that's also there's also like a, a toad that's called or yeah a, a genus then a group of toads called unken. Okay, yeah, but so that's is- sort of old fashioned, I think. Yeah, it might not be a real classification. It might be one of these kind of general things. But anyway, there's this incredible toads, and I'm going to start with the fire belly toads, but the unken reflex kind of applies to a, a huge amount of um, toads and also some salamanders and other frogs and other friends of toads. Um, the sort who would all hang out in the same kind of swampy party. And the unken reflex is named after this fire belly dude, and from the top, it looks pretty much like an ordinary toad it's kind of knobbly a little bit slimy looking and it's it's quite dark brown so it looks like if it was sitting on a rock especially a wet rock from above you might not notice the frog you might just see another toad you might just see sort of knobbly mm-hmm. rocky bits but if you flip the toad upside down you see this like bright fiery orange i mean it's his name fire belly toad this beautiful beautiful belly a uh, power belly and the unken reflex is that if this toad gets attacked, it suddenly like arches its back and does like this incredible yoga positions. It sort of does like an upside down cat cow, I would say. Like it puts its belly up and arches everything, but like with its belly on display mm-hmm. so that you suddenly see the red, like this orangey color. And the, the orange is, it's, it's fire, it's dangerous. So it's kind of warning all the other predators to to get away. And yeah, I think everybody should go and Google this. It's incredible. And from now on, <laughs> I will be, I don't know, dedicating my life to yoga just so that I can do unken reflex if ever, like, something tries to sweep on me from... It's so cool. Like, look at the images of these things. (laughs) They just entirely twist their bodies and, like, show off what what should be, like... It should be the parts you want to protect. It should be, like, the soft underbelly that you do not want somebody, but they're like, yeah, look at my fire belly. Yeah. Do not attack. So it switches from camouflage to warning Mm -hmm. immediately. Mm. Yeah, I I looked up. I was also right with my from the verb unken. <laughs> it's it's sort of a pessimistic outlook on the world. Uh, okay. So we were both right, Tegan. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> I mean, I find one of those things more beautiful, but okay. <laughs> um, everybody, go and look up unken reflex. It's not about plants, but why not? <laughs> favorite plant so today it's my turn to talk about my favorite plant and my favorite plant today is Aldoinia capitata now if you look up Aldoinia capitata on wikipedia there is nothing it's not even a stub article there's absolutely no information about it oh so we're done what is the next thing (laughs) (laughs) pretty much moving on um you can google it it shows up it's kind of a pretty small shrubby bush with very beautiful pink flowers quite brightly colored um, but basically on Google, there's really not much information about it anywhere. It's called false heath as the common name, and it's found on the very tip of the Cape of South Africa. So sort of the the, the most southerly, jutty out western part um, in South Africa. And it is rare. It's sort of wildly-ish found, but in quite small subpopulations. Um, we're not really sure how much is known about it. But one of the particular things about it is that up until maybe 20 years ago, 15 years ago, we couldn't really work out how to grow it in a lab. So 
I found an article called Smokey the Gardener um, from Science News back in 2004, and it's talking about how this false heath could not be reliably grown by anybody but Mother Nature. And that's basically because it relies on fire as one of their ways to get the seeds to sprout. So this is kind of common in some regions, um, generally <laughs> regions that are fire prone. Some species take advantage of this and sort of respond to some of the chemical signals in the smoke from the fire. We actually know what these are now. We've talked about them before on the podcast. There's a molecule called carakins. Um, and this like stimulates the, the germination of the seedling. Um, to, to grow after the the fire goes through yeah which so is important I, for for plants then they can have a, they have a blank slate essentially where they can immediately start growing and for if you think about a forest or any diverse uh, ecosystem there's often a lot of competition and plants really can't grow wherever they want and a fire sort of sets everything back to zero and then mm -hmm. the ones that understand that trigger they can be the first ones to grow towards the light and then start shading the others and that's a huge advantage Exactly right. Like they've got seeds sort of stored in the seed bank and then they just get started the second everything is gone. And this is actually why I wanted to talk about this plant. I wasn't so interested in this plant specifically, but I was interested more in sort of the plant in the context of its environment. So there's a recent article that came out about the, the biome, about the, the area that this plant lives on um, and how that's formed and how fire plays a really important role in forming this biome. So the biome is called the Finbos. Um, and this is, I think it's actually said Finbos. That would be the correct way to pronounce it, I'm guessing. It basically means fine plants. And it's this really extraordinary um, sort of thin belt of shrub and heathland that's found in the Western Cape and also in the Eastern Cape of South Africa. So right on the tip. And it's, it's really incredible from a biodiversity point of view. So it's got just a ton of species, like some of the most large amount of species in a small area. But it's also really interesting because it's this massive, like like this very sharp transition between the fine boss and then this sort of more foresty land. Yeah. And yeah, it sort of, it almost doesn't make sense how the, the transition is so sharp. Like if you go from one meat to the next, you've switched entirely from this fine boss with these thousands of different species to what is effectively forest, which actually has like less biodiversity um, and is like, you know, taller, bushy, kind of what you think of as you see a forest. Yeah, no, I've, I've also read a story about this and that they called this a, a really a binary transition. It's from zero to one, you enter the fine boss territory and you rarely ever see this in in nature even usually if a forest goes over for example into savannah you have a long stretch in between where you have mixed plants and it sort of thins out and then you change from one area like the forest into the savannah but with the fine boss it's it's a sharp line it's just straight up you can be with one foot in the forest with one foot in a fin fine boss um because it's that sharp yeah, so I just want to like mention some of the, the differences. If you look aerially, it really looks almost like a lawn next to a forest. Like it's it's so clear visually. Um, we'll put a link in where you can actually see that photo if you want to have a look. But you also go in the fine boss, you have like 7,000 plant species. Um, 
70% of them are endemic, so they're only found there. A lot of them, almost 2,000, are on the red list, which means they're like quite endangered. Um, and then if you go into this sort of forest right next, like literally a meter away, there's like way less plant species, so less than 500 plant species. And about 40% of those are like trees and shrubs instead of being these heathlands. There's also big differences in the um, types of leaf and bark, um, the sort of general types of plants, obviously, between the two. And there's also differences between the soil. So one of the things that's noticeable is the difference um, in the, the carbon and, and nitrogen content. And we'll come a little bit back to that and how that relates to the fire. But the reason we're talking about this, and I know, Yoram, you also found this, this same article, um, is that there was a publication recently in PNAS that came out February 14th um, by Ming Zhang Lu and colleagues. And it's literally talking about how this biome boundary is formed. So the article is called Biome Boundary Maintained by Intense Below Ground Resource Competition in World's Thinnest Rooted Plant Community. So this is kind of a weird thing because there's this huge difference between the types of vegetation, but there's not necessarily such a difference between the underlying sort of like soil biogeochemistry like like the, the the soil itself is not different types except i mean it seems that there's the alterations that happen seem to be driven by the predominance of fire in the fine boss and then what the plants are doing um yeah. to the soil but like if you remove both types of plants there's not a huge there's not like sudden changes in precipitation like moisture there's not sudden changes in the the type of soil it's it's really seems to be driven by the biological factors the plant as opposed to driven by underlying abiotic factors which is yeah a little bit strange almost right yeah you could imagine that the mineral content for example is is widely different and maybe you have just two sheets of of minerals passing one another and therefore you have the different biomes growing right next to one another uh but yeah as you said that's not the case uh it's comes down to the fact that the the fine boss plants have a very unique um and adapted root system to the way that they grow and as you said already in the title of the paper they have the some of the thinnest roots that we that we know um they are I, somewhere i have the number yeah the, the median of it so if you take all of them lay them out by side and you take the middle one of them that's 0.1 millimeters thing thin <laughs> um so incredibly hair-like structures uh, are for, for the roots and they do something specific with the soil. Yeah, so that's actually like one quarter to one half of the thickness of other root systems. Like they're not yeah. just like, you know, that sounds thin, but just to put that into perspective of other roots. And they're also extra long. So they said that if you take a gram of the the plant root tissue, so like uh, what you see would see on a thumbtack, it gets 15 football fields length. Yeah. of terror this is like insanely thin and insanely long um and they're doing this to be what the reporter in this article we're also going to link to describes as nutrient seeking missiles so they sort of snake <laughs> through the soil um and grab up all of the nutrients that they can yeah they they're depleting the soil of all nutrients they whatever they find they suck it up like a giant plant sponge and keep it to themselves and take it away from anything else that wants to grow there. And that's how they define this sharp line, because any plant that doesn't have these fine roots, 
they don't stand a chance in this environment. They want to grow there, but first of all, they can't compete with the amount of roots that is there just by area covered. Because if you imagine the thinner the roots are, the bit more surface they have, the better they are at taking up nutrients. So they can't compete with that. And then there's no nutrients there. And therefore, they can't survive. And so what I like about the study is that so you can you can show these root properties, you can show that they're really long, really thin, they're great at getting nutrients. But the authors also did this kind of transplant study where they took some of the plant species you would normally find in the forest and they moved them into the fine boss and saw how they did. But on top of that, they also like made sure they removed all the f- uh, fine boss plants to make sure that they weren't sucking out the nutrients. Um, and they also did sort of like n- nutrient manipulation to see what was a limiting factor and that's how they came to their conclusion so like they sort of observed this thing and then they did some some cool um on the ground experimental action to see what was the cause of this this really sharp boundary i think that's that's kind of the main finding i would really encourage you to go and look at especially the aerial pictures because it just yeah to me it's it's quite shocking that is that there is a difference in the soil, like nitrogen and, and phosphorescent content, but that's kind of based on plant activity, it seems to be. This is not something where you're going from having limestone cliffs to, I don't know, peaty soil. It's, it's really this strong mm-hmm. biology-driven changes, and it, it looks just so impressive. And what is the relationship of the fibers with the fire? Oh, okay. So they are also kind of fire lovers uh, generally. So this is one of the things where they regenerate quite quickly mm-hmm. after fire. And they can also, I think, encourage fire. So some of them have these kind of, um, yeah, like uh, flammable <laughs> properties as well. Mm-hmm. I, I only have one thing that uh, that is sort of at the end of this article, but something that is very... Uh, close to to us what we did in, in, with the last book that we read or I don't know if it's the last or the one before for the plant book club um, about the, the world of fungi uh, that might also play a role here because of this mm-hmm. very thin root network it can be imagined that they have a very close relationship as well with fungi that are also similar sized and while we don't have evidence for that yet um, from, from these studies uh, it's probably probable or likely that they might also be some fungi that play a role there and that then further increase the advantage of these uh, these plants in the fine boss that they just perfectly work together with everything that's in the soil to suck up all of the nutrients and have the biggest growth advantage there yeah so just to, to mention i i sort of brought up this one species which is the Aldoinia capitata but i really wanted to, to talk about this story <laughs> and not that species i don't know much about it if anybody knows anything about that species please get in contact but yeah the the fine boss itself it isn't a species it's like several thousand species um, many of which are like quite locally found so it's, it's just this insanely diverse habitat but you know i thought it was a cool story yeah normally uh i would um make fun of you for picking such a big group <laughs> but i picked once an entire genus so i think this is this is like a biome it's even maybe one step up because we've got like <laughs> this this group from from all across but such an interesting story and really yeah. really worth having a look at the pictures as well i reckon diversity in the class science and today it's me uh i found a story uh from the john in center about 
in, actually in their article two international women of the 20th century and I picked one of the two and I picked uh, Irma or Irma Anderson is probably closest to the right um, uh, pronunciation of, the, of her name um, a Swedish researcher she lived from 1895 to 1985 um, and uh, she was one of the first women working in a John Inn Center and she had some a uh, very important impact on on this on her field of study that which was ferns so she she graduated with a degree in sweden actually and then came to the john innes center uh, in the uk in mm -hmm. the 1920s and she had to bring her own money she had to bring a, a swedish stipend because at the beginning she had to work there as a volunteer um, because foreigners could not get proper contracts in the uk back then and like any foreigner just I don't know if any foreigners or Swedish foreigners specifically, but um, because both of the women they, um, in the article, they they came from uh, Scandinavia. I think one is Norve uh, from Norway and uh, Irma Andersson is from Sweden. And both of them, said in, it was said in the article, had to volunteer and work mm. for free and have their own money. And only when they've proven themselves to be um, uh, worthy scientists, they actually got real contracts. And... Yeah, I I can't comment <laughs> it's, too much it's on so the. It's <laughs> so frustrating because you know at the same time like that's such a benefit to that institute that center as far as like like they're getting these brilliant people, but also that's that's then becoming a selling point. I mean, yeah, now definitely it's something they're advertising, and I'm sh I'm sure they're like sort of maybe admitting their mistakes now, but like also. I'm sure at the time also you know we've got these best people from all over the world. Okay, yeah. cool, but. <laughs> Yeah. Let's be supporting people financially, guys. Yeah, and 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 fairly and stuff. Um, what yeah. did she work on? <laughs> she worked. <laughs> Move away from this fiery topic. Um, yeah, so she she worked on variegation. So when you have plants that have multiple leaf colors, and um, I think usually is variegated always white and green. Now I'm actually I'm not even sure, or if, if that can be also other colors. I mean, it's it's like splotchy, so it can be like not p fully white, but you know, lacking chlorophyll bits. Yeah, but it's but always about broken photosynthesis, right? I you could. I could look this up, but um, I could also just put you on the spot there. But anyway, so she worked on variegated I'm plants. I think like could you have also variegation? Does it? It does it have to be in the leaf? I think it has to be in the leaf. I don't know if you. I think you can some. Oh, wait, I'm just saying if you could use it for the flowers. Is that a variegated flowers? I, I just saw variegate is sort of a mixture of <laughs> tissues in my head. So um, when you have two parents and they bring their own tissues or sometimes they have incompatib incompatibilities, then the offspring can have a sort of mixed tissue from both and then you can see that if photosynthesis is broken. You correct Wikipedia me now. says the term is also used for flowers, but also minerals and the skin, fur, feathers and scales of animals. So like it can be anything and probably we should have known yeah. that. But she didn't uh, work in animals uh, and fur, but she worked in, <laughs> in brassica plants. So, nice, nice segue. Uh, so that's regular, what we call higher plants. But she also worked in ferns, um, specifically in Adiantum cuneatum, which is a variegated type of fern. And what she managed to do there is to grow the ferns in tissue culture. 
which is mm -hmm. for us nowadays fairly standard if you work in a in a molecular plant lab to grow plants in tissue culture which is you don't grow them on soil but you grow them on this wet medium uh, containing agar or some other gelifying agent and then you have nutrients in there you have water in there and um, the whole thing is sterile there's only the only living thing in there is your plant there's no microbes um, no fungi no other plants no insects and that can be very useful for some things that you want to study and she established that for ferns and this was such a strong work that she did there that she was in, invited to join the British Fern Society, uh, the Teridological Society, mm -hmm. um, as an honorary member, but she opted to become um, a full, like a real member, not only honorary. I imagine that also has, has something to do with membership fees and stuff. And she wanted to be like a proper member, not just somebody who was um, honorably invited there. And um, yeah, with all of this work, she was uh, she was very valuable to her institute, and she was recognized in her um, she was recognized by promoting her to the uh, position of student in 1923, and uh, which sounds not like much, but what she got also there um, a specifically adapted glasshouse for growing ferns in sterile conditions, um, which is pretty cool. So she got her own research lab to just to grow ferns in, in sterile culture i mean coming from a plant science background i have to say like growing space in the greenhouse is pretty high up there in the yeah. list of the things you want <laughs> and it's what a lot of people are negotiating for when they're trying to find their yeah. their final professorship position is like okay i i like the job i like the pay I, I like the conditions but can you give me you know growing chambers can you give me a greenhouse yeah and i think some people would even be happy to take a, a cut in pay um to some extent to just have more space to grow plants because it's really often the limiting factor for the stuff that you want to study um and uh, a, um, another researcher that worked with her, Cyril Dean Darlington, who joined the institute um, in the year she got her um, uh, she got her glasshouse, uh, complimented her of recognizing her as an independent researcher. But he also described her then um, some ten years later as a, a very good and original, but difficult, and she does not need or desire assistance. So she was a really independent researcher in many senses of the word which in the 1930s i imagine was quite <laughs> extraordinary thinking, i was just thinking like also in the 1930s an independent woman would be described as somebody who like yeah difficult does anything by herself yeah. like, oh you're so independent you don't want me to open the door you don't want me to yeah assume you don't know how to yeah everything uh, so yeah, she she authored um, eleven scientific papers on ferns at the John Innes Center, um, and g gained her University of London PhD in 1934. Uh, and then she left the institute and returned to Sweden. And then I could not find anything on her anymore, at least in English uh, language uh, internet sources. Mm -hmm. So I imagine that she continued her research, but I actually don't know. Um, she, yeah, so that's uh, Irma Andersen or Imerson Andersen Kotte um, after her marriage, uh, who established uh, tissue culture in ferns, as, first as a volunteer and then actually being paid. <laughs> 
Sorry, like I wanted to comment on the fact that like on Wikipedia there's an image of her and she has what looks like a lab coat, but it also it's somehow a lab coat that's also a dressing gown and it looks so cool. It just looks <laughs> so much like most lab coats you're supposed to button them down the middle. None of us ever bother buttoning them, so they're always like hanging or at least I, <laughs> I barely if I ever wore my lab coat I would not. She it just it just looks so she's got pockets, it looks fashionable, it looks comfortable, it's the lab coat of my dreams. She's also <laughs> rolled the sleeves up. I mean it's probably humid in her glass house. I I feel it. I, I want that to be a thing. I mean, I don't wear a lab coat anymore. I don't work in, in the lab, but... Yeah, that's, cool. that's true. That's some, that looks like a very um, comfortable lab attire. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias. 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 Yeah, so this... This time I don't want to talk about the a conventional cognitive bias, which is what we normally bring up in this segment. I actually just want to quickly discuss a correspondence I read in one of the nature journals. It's like Nature Human Behavior. Um, and I, I, I was interested in it because it was one of these things where it sort of shifted a little bit the way I thought about an issue that we have in academia in particular, but I think like a general issue in many workplaces. There's the issue of bullying. Um, so... We, we have talked about this before, I think, on the podcast, how, you know, bullying is quite a problem in academia, especially because there's quite steep hierarchies there can be and there's so much competition and there can be, like, big power differentials, um, which means that it's very hard to speak out against bullies for the victims and it often the systems set up do require that the victims themselves come forward and then they can often threaten their PhDs um, or their entire academic career if they speak out against, you know, a professor who has position and, and, and strength and stuff like that. So this has been something that's been discussed a lot and, you know, how it can have very negative effects on mental health and all of these outcomes. In recent years, we've sort of tried to shift, I think, a little bit the def like the the way we talk about bullying in that, you know, even just 10 years ago, there was often this idea of sort of the the single genius who is so smart um, and so incredible that we should just put up with anything that they do because that's part of the price of them being a, a genius. And sometimes it, it's not even just like because they're a genius, we should put up with them being a jerk. It's that, oh, yes, that's the cost of, of a true genius is that maybe they're not good with people or they're a bit of a jerk. And this is something that it's it's sort of been discussed a lot. It's it's was, I mean, not explicitly, but I think that was the feel a lot in academia. But we also see this a lot in, in common media. So there's a lot of TV shows, think like Dr. House or a lot of these kind of detective-based shows where the main character is often like a single older white male who is, you know, the genius, the one who can solve the problems, but they are very problematic. Um, if you go back and watch, for example, Dr. House, really not a great person, a lot of sexual harassment, a lot of bullying, a lot of like, and this is very much sold as well. That's the cost for getting his genius and it's worth it mm -hmm. for his genius. And this is, again, it's not just this show. It's It was really a very common theme of shows kind of still is but like yeah. especially in the early noughties and before that i mean it's the entire premise of the big bang theory um they all the dudes are super genius physicists physicists and they're all terrible human beings um and yeah because they're so yeah. smart they just can't deal with humans because they're so clever 
So this is this is kind of it's really disturbingly recent in my opinion that there are more discussions about the fact that that's not okay that we shouldn't be accepting problematic and hurtful and harmful people just no matter how brilliant they are this is not okay and also part of that discussion has been not just that we shouldn't accept it but also that that should be seen as failure to do the job so if you're a brilliant scientist if you're somebody who's great in the lab and produces amazing results but you do not have the skills to manage a person then maybe a group leader position is not for you because part of the job of a group leader is management. And if you are great at one part and not the other part, that can be fine, but that job requires both parts. And often because management is seen as a softer skill, which is often undervalued, we are not considering that this person is actually just failing their job in in a normal objective analysis of their ability to do the job they would not be able to do their job if they cannot manage people that would be yeah okay so this is kind of one step forward and honestly we still are not quite there we we haven't quite solved this clearly in academia i would say um and in a lot of job positions you know if somebody's got a management role and they're not managing people properly they shouldn't be in that role maybe that's yeah. not, anyway <laughs> that's already a general problem but this piece is actually called how bullying becomes a career tool and it's talking about instead of seeing bullying as just something that we shouldn't be tolerating we should actually see that some people are using bullying as a way to get themselves to move forward so it's actually like sort of a, a tool they have in their belt and they are using that against other people, pushing other people out. And again, usually it's going to be minorities, um, either gender or, you know, geographic diversity, race, whatever, like any non-majority. And this in itself then switches the concept of bullying. It's not just that those people have bad traits, it's that actually they've used bullying as a way to get themselves into the position of power. So like if you just see the end product and you see somebody in power who happens to bully, be a bully, you might think, okay, but they're awesome because they're in power, they must be awesome and therefore bullying. But what if we think about, hang on, maybe they've actually like weaponized bullying as a way to get ahead. And in doing so, you think more about the fact that other people get pushed out and these other people might be more competent and this is something that is still not being discussed that for one person who's succeeding as a bully we are losing i mean this is this is being discussed more now but like reframing it as this is not something that i'd thought about very much so mm -hmm. i quite like the piece it's just a very short piece um hopefully you can find access to it somewhere um but yeah, it's a it's an interesting. I don't know, Yarm. I hadn't thought about this no, I, I, so much I, as a tool. I it, it it crossed my mind a couple of times in 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 the past that this is an advantage for your career if you are sort of cutthroat and um, part part of that is bullying. Part of that is being um, sort of sneaky or uncooperative in some ways or taking advantage of others. Um, it's, it's, it's a big bag of very mixed, bad social behaviors. But uh, I think there is not really uh, a punishment in the system, system for that and there is rather a benefit of that. If you take mm -hmm. advantage of... So somebody that's, tells that's you in, in sort of 
um, in, in a closed meeting, they say something about their results and you take that silently for, for yourself and then you, with your bigger budget, you continue working on their idea and then you publish that and you push them out. That's some sort of bad social practice. That's an advantage, like a very clear direct advantage to your group. And there's lots of things, as you said, like more indirect stuff. If you bully certain competitors or potential future competitors out of the, the market, um, it raises your, it increases your chances, and it increases also. It, it creates a, a system where you are surrounded by other bullies, um, because the people at some point to succeed, there's a tendency that they they might have been bullies or they, and not all of them are bullies, obviously. But you surround yourself with similar people, and that again strengthens your position. Yeah, so some something from the the piece itself, there it says that there's, and I'm quoting here, an emerging body of research suggests that mediocre academics in particular resort to bullying to remove their competition, um, and that also experimental research has shown that when male hierarchies are disrupted by women, it incites hostile behaviour specifically from poorly performing men because they stand to lose the most. And then it says, like, based on that, we shouldn't just be considering this as, like, a problem, but it's unethical activity. It's like... Yeah. It's, it's it's not ethical anymore and this is a different definition than just being like it's naughty it's bad it's socially wrong it's like no this is unethical practice in in doing science and in, in doing workplace that um stuff yeah. and this is also um it's come up before in also the the question of sexual harassment so um there was something talked about how sexual harassment is similarly used and the quote there is abuse of power is not incidental to these men's greatness it's central to it so, like, that's how they're getting what they want. It's not that they happen to be doing that while doing yeah. the things to get what they want. That is actually a method they are using yeah. to get what they want by getting everybody else out of their way. Like, if not by reason, then by force. Yeah. And it can be argued whether or not this is conscious or unconscious behavior. Um, but it, At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if there's an them. impact, right? Yeah. Exactly. Like, and this is... Yeah, so there's also, like, this, this kind of focuses around a, a woman who was treated well in her workplace, then got a really huge grant, and then sort of after this became this target of harassment, including physical attacks, apparently, um, partially because there seemed to be, um, I think there was a different story. There's like another one where there's like, there was an idea that somebody was taking away from the sort of the, the key, the prince of the, the institute. Let me just quickly have a look. Yeah, when she won a major grant, people started to doubt the capabilities of one of the department's crown princes, so somebody who was expected to be promoted, and they sort of blamed her because her winning the grant made them doubt this person, and then that person didn't get promoted, and like somehow that was her fault that she won the grant, <laughs> as opposed to like this other person's fault they didn't. And again, this is this is based on opinion from this person, but it's definitely interesting. I, I can only say that with my limited anecdotal evidence, uh, it tracks, <laughs> and I've this seen that happen. Never, this never uh, how we should start off a scientific discourse <coughs> with my with my limited anecdotal I mean, this, info. This, this is an opinion I, piece, I and it's support. It is an opinion piece. I should mention that it's not peer reviewed. It does link to some studies that have been done, but this is a yeah discussion and, piece. And therefore, my opinion there is I agree. <laughs> um, cool. And yeah, and it's true that we have to change. Like we, we need, like so often, we need systemic change to actually eliminate the benefit that people get from bullying. Maybe if we can't completely get rid of it, at least we should not um, promote it by allowing people to then further their career by being 
unethical and bullies. And I have no idea how to do that in practice immediately, but it's something that, yeah, it's, it, it needs more attention and needs to be needs to be tackled because, I mean, it, it then all leads links to other things like the people fleeing academia because of the horrible working conditions because if the most of the people in power that you work with are some sort of sociopath, willing or unwilling... <laughs> It's a very hostile work environment. I think, I think we've gone a little bit step to to say like most people are sociopath. Like we got a little not, bit not most, but, but like a significant <laughs> amount of people that you encounter. I mean, honestly, it just takes one, one person. Like, yeah, exactly. Even if it just takes one with enough power. Um, just to mention, you can find this article if you go on Twitter. A lot of that is because there's people who have just like photographed this straight from the magazine and like highlighted great chunks of information. It's obviously resonating quite strongly with different people in the community so if you just put how bullying becomes a career tool into twitter this the full article will pop up it's only a one-page thing so like definitely recommend going and reading that and i would say probably sharing it with everybody you know if (laughs) if you think bullies should be punished (laughs) i mean not punished um what's the right word here (coughs) just driven out of academia oh my god (laughs) yeah or at least not getting any benefits from their behavior at the very least so I think this is the thing that I, I like about it. It's not it's not that we haven't thought about bullying and the impact it have before, but it's the idea that if we see bullying as an unethical tool that people are using to get ahead, even if they're not using it deliberately, but it's an unethical tool to get ahead, then that's no different from like plagiarizing, like making up data. Like this should be categorized in the same way and dealt with. And I think that's what is really like interesting about this piece is this idea of like, if we rephrase it in this way of like, cheating to get ahead that's how the system should be dealing with it not just as a, a problem with your personality or like a failure like really like you're cheating to advance your career mm-hmm. that's a different that's a different way of i really like that i think that's yeah. very powerful and that's that's how we should be addressing these issues this is where the fun begins you this is where the fun begins you this is where the fun begins um, speaking of the very often hellhole that is Twitter, somebody sent me something and I don't know if it's true, so sorry, it's from Twitter, I didn't fact check. There's something called the Pay Gap app, like at Pay Gap app, it's a gender pay gap bot, have you seen it? Yeah, I've seen that, yeah. And I it's even know a little bit of the backstory. <laughs> okay, I'm going to just mention what it is first. So it's just an account um, and it's in response to International Women's Day and it's this fact that so many people like post something for International Women's Day or for any cause. They post like, we support women and in our company, we love women. But they're just saying things instead of fixing things. And the tag of this is deeds, not words. Stop posting platitudes, start fixing the problem. And basically, if anybody tweets with International Women's Day, the gender pay bot responds by discussing how big the gender pay gap is in that company that tweets and i don't know if their facts are true yaron what do you know about this um it's it's if it's a uk-based company and i think it's only for uk-based companies that the bot is actually responding or quote tweeting um then it's true because by law in the uk companies have to publish their gender pay gap data um uh, there's an official government website for it where they have to mm-hmm. break down by different um, groups, age and, and sex, I think mostly um, the, the, the pay gaps or the, 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 the salary bands. And then from that, you can calculate the, the gender pay gap. And this is what somebody did and put that in, the, in a database and then fed the, the bot with it. 
and then all of is these it companies. actually a bot? I just assumed it was a person pretending to be a bot. Uh, I don't know if that's if if it's a bot or if it's a person doing a bot or if it's like semi-automated and the bot highlights it and the person then just mm. says yes, please send the tweet. I don't know that, but judging from the fact that all of the tweets are half the same it just structure, says, in this organization, women's medium hourly pay is X percent higher than men's, or usually X percent lower than men's. Yeah, and some um, of them well done, Nottinghamshire really healthcare. <laughs> Some of them were, Sorry. I mean, some of them were bad with 20, 25%, but some had 80% pay gaps between women and men in the company. Um, so it's quite, I think it's a quite effective use of publicly available data to really highlight where problems lie in, mm-hmm. in these companies. And I think, I, I, I wish we had that in Germany, that we had, the, I mean, Germans are <laughs> notoriously... Um, problematic when discussing salaries uh, we are told that we must not ever talk about how much money we get and therefore there's also no public database where you can see um, in large companies what are actually what is the money that they're paying their employees um, and I wish we would have that here because you can do fun but also very informative stuff with it yeah, this is. I just think it's funny because I mean we've we've got so much into that thing of of tweeting and showing and not acting, and it's it is like you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Um, anyway, <laughs> that's not related to plants. Sorry, guys. Let's get back to plants. <laughs> um, I have a story. Uh, something that we we talked about before in other contexts about the the link between rare plants or plants that need to be preserved and the military. Uh, I think I've had one or two stories Wait, in the past uh, where um, for mil- military training grounds are perfect spots for biodiversity because these are usually mostly undisturbed areas. From time to time, they go with a tank through it or they, mm, they shoot some mm-hmm. grenades or they have some recruits running through it. But there's no traffic, there's no agriculture, there's no urban development happening there and therefore plants and animals have a fairly good time there if they avoid the bombs that are sometimes dropped there. Um, <clears throat> and now they found in uh, Corsica, on a military base that's um, defunct now, they found the largest population of a rare protected orchid. That um, They found over 150,000 individuals of the plant in this um, uh in this military base, it's uh, from the genus uh, Serapias, Serapias neglecta, um, and <laughs> they, yeah, they because th- there wasn't even military personnel operating there anymore. Uh, it was just this perfect isolated spot that had barbed wire around it, so nobody could get in and disturb it. And so the orchids could multiply there and form this massive population, um, and. This uh, this really helped, and there were also factors like, uh, like the the meadows around the airport. They were regularly mowed for security reason when it was still active, and this also helped the orchids to survive because there was a low vegetation environment, and then on that they could grow very well. Um, and yeah, this shows that sometimes, or that if we close military bases, let me put it this way: if you close military bases and then keep them closed and locked off. There's, there's some good hotspots for plants. Um, yeah, I don't know if you can learn anything <laughs> can bigger learn than that, but it's, it's, I just, um, it's, or it's protective usually... errors might be better actually. Let's um, yeah. <laughs> formalize this and actually just protect them. Yeah, let's just protect areas uh, where we really don't do any sort of development, also no tourism or anything that really helps them helps them with the plants there. 
Yoram, I have a question for you. Do you remember um, back in the lab days how people used to pollinate tomato plants? With a brush? Is that... I think, I think, I never did tomato, but I think they had to use an electric toothbrush. So they took advantage, they took the toothbrush part off and they took advantage of the fact that the tip vibrates Mm -hmm. and use that to like harvest the pollen. I think that's correct. Um, Again, like screaming us if, um, or just screaming to the void if we're wrong. Um, So this is actually this this fact that like a lot of plants, they they make pollen um, and then they have a pollinator come and they want pollen to go on the pollinator and then the pollinator to bugger off and put the pollen somewhere else. But they don't want that they use up all of their pollen on one pollinator. Ideally for the plant, you get a diversity of pollinators not necessarily different species sometimes different species but sometimes it's even just one species but a lot of individuals um because then you're spreading your pollen further um you sort of hedging bets by getting it all out there so many plants have come up with a way of basically dosing so that when a a, let's say an insect a bee comes on there instead of like giving him all your pollen you just give like a dose (laughs) like there you go (laughs) like my little clicky medication thing I don't get all of the dust in my lung immediately. I just get one portion of the dust. And then I have to click again. A new bee has to come. And then there's another dose of pollen going there. It's exactly the same thing, Tegan. You can't deny it. I didn't really understand your clicky thing, but sure. It's like your arm's <laughs> clicky thing. So it's quite common in um, different plants. A particularly common dosing strategy, according to this paper, um, is that they have sort of tube-like answers. Um, so the the male sexy parts of the pollen is kept inside tubes, and they're often only open with small amounts. So sort of as they ripen, a little slit will open or a small pore or a valve and, then valve, and then like a little bit of pollen can come through that, but it's not completely naked and open. Um, and then in order to get the pollen there's different ways of doing it but bees tend to basically grab on it and then hump it um, and they use a term which is more scientifically than humping called floral buzzing so you can imagine they're sort of um, contracting their it's their indirect flight muscles so just like buzzing mm-hmm. basically as you would imagine a bee would do and vibrating up and down on this flower and joying its pollen out um, in a certain amount and they they have to buzz in order to get the pollen to come out and what do you think would be then considered in how the plants i mean if you imagine this this plant is evolving with the the bee and the plant wants to dose a certain amount of pollen it makes sense that over time the structural properties of those special anther tubes are fitted so that just the bee gets the right amount of pollen so what do you think you have to consider then as as the flower um, um the the size of the bee the opening of your little anther tube there mm-hmm. um and the stickiness of the pollen that how quickly i imagine if it's if i compare salt in a tube and it's slightly wet then it clumps more and f- flows out slower than when it's really dry and flows out very easily so maybe the properties mm-hmm. of the pollen as well Okay, so you've got properties of the plant, which is like the size of the slit, the size of the pollen, the stickiness of the pollen, how easy it flows. And then properties of the bee. So you mentioned like how big the bee is, which is one thing. What else do you need to consider? Frequency, that how it vibrates. How buzzy the bee is. So this is um, where this story comes in that I found today. It's actually a journal that I had not heard of before. It's the the journal from the Royal Society and it's a journal called Interface. And they looked at um, structural dynamics of real and modelled solanum. So this is like the potato-tomato family stamens. Um, 
implications for pollen ejection by buzzing bees. And they were basically looking at one particular species of Solanum, um, which is the silver leaf nightshade or Solanium iliagnifolium. Cool. Um, <laughs> and they were they were trying to work out, yeah, exactly these things. So how the different size and the buzzing frequency of the bee would have to sort of work together to get this dosing of pollen. Um, and basically their conclusion was that buzzing alone doesn't cut it. You need not just buzzing, but the body weight of the bee to be mm. humping along as it buzzes. Um, and that's kind of, so like he's sort of pulling it down with his weight while also buzzing and together that buzzy action is what's getting the flower to release its happiness. I just have to, to think the entire time of, do you know these, these, these candy, the sour fizzy candy that's in a straw? And mm -hmm. it's close on both ends. And then as a kid, you sort of open one end oh, and yeah. nibble on it. But then you chew on it and then it, the stuff hardly comes out. Um, this reminds me of the, of the pollen of the anthers there. And then you have to do the right amount of wiggling and, and nudging it to get the sugar in your mouth. Um, exactly like that. Forever. More vibration. Yeah. Maybe but yeah. Um. Should have taken, taken a toothbrush and vibrated it to get it out. Um, or a knife. <laughs> um yeah anyway i just i so i just thought it was interesting because it's not something i had sort of come across this you know i don't know much about the structure of how flowers are keeping their pollen in these um these tubes um they're called porocidal anthers i don't know if i said that it might be porocidal cidal sounds like death <laughs> anyway, answers with with pores. I didn't really know much about that, but also I didn't really think about the fact that you need both the frequency and then like the bendy, like his tugging and his his shaking, and that's what's getting it out. I mean, it's just really really cool all these different ways that plants have evolved to specialize to their insects and vice versa. So I I love these stories, but it's something that this is an angle I hadn't come across before. Mm -hmm. um, we'll put the link there just as a mention. I could find the full text via um bio archives so if you want to read the full text we can put that link there as well yeah i have a follow-up on pollinators and i have an experiment for you tegan to to guess let's let's i like it when you do that to me so i'm trying to do this to do you now um so imagine you go into a field that's next to your lab and you pick some plants there that look like they have very nice flowers and then you take them from the field you grow them in your greenhouse and then you bring out your tiny, tiny pump and you suck up all of the nectar from the flowers. The nectar? The nectar from the flowers. And then you okay. replace the nectar with something. Can you guess what your experiment is there? What do you want to do there? What do you replace the nectar with and why? Um, I might replace it with something that has the same sugar content, but is doesn't have some of the other properties so i think we discussed before with one of the flowers that you said was bright red and i think a gecko or a lizard mm -hmm. like to come to it so i could imagine they're having the nectar sucking the color out of it and just putting the non-colored thing like bleaching it and putting the non-colored or the other way around getting like sugar water with just the color molecule that kind of experiment i can imagine so you're trying to find out what is attractive about the nectar mm-hmm yeah, it's but it's um it's a good idea and I think that's that's a, a good experiment. But in this case, they didn't take something away; they added something to the nectar. Um, and it's very simple. It's something you have in your home. 
I'm just panicking now. Hand cream. <laughs> Lamp, uh, table, chair. <laughs> a mobile phone. Um, um, uh, um, it's, I have avocados in my home. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> Some sort of oil. They, they, they put guacamole back into the flowers. <laughs> and all the hips of bees. I don't know. All the millennial geckos came to that flower. I um, don't know what the answer is. Um, so they replaced it with salt. Um, or okay. sugar water and 1% salt, not not just pure salt into the flour and see what happens. And then can you get what what they observed then? What was the experiment later on? So you're putting salt in. So either they're seeing if the pollinator got its electrolytes better after doing a lot of sport, basically Gatorade <laughs> for moths, or you're seeing if it made the moths freeze less in the winter i'm making up that it's a moth i don't know what the pollinator is it's like an antifreeze where you add salt and you're like now both the flower and the moth don't freeze as the weather gets colder yeah these are my two <laughs> these are my two hypotheses i mean the electrolytes no, the, the electrolytes is a very good point because a big problem that you have being an insect that only feeds on nectar from plants um, is that you can't really get salt. And salt is very important for your muscles that you need to move around. Um, because usually the nectar then contains sugar and water. Yeah, yeah I yeah. think I know a disgusting fact about this. Yes. From no such thing as a fish, I'm sure they mentioned it. And I, I really hope I'm not making this up because it's embarrassing if I am. Um, ma many female butterflies get their salt content only from having sex with male butterflies and getting it through the semen. Yeah. That's and my fact. <laughs> other butterflies, they, they drink blood to get the uh, the electrolytes. Yes, that is a fact. That's disgusting also. If those are your two options. I think we've had a discussion. If, if you know, <laughs> yeah. either or, those are your two options, which would you do? Um, yeah, but in this case, it's... it's uh, they don't actually specify what the pollinators are because I think they took some uh, diverse, um, like a series of different plants that they that they looked at, and they didn't look at one specific pollinator. Um, but they, yeah, they they wondered where do they get their salt from, and is is that maybe a selecting factor for the for the pollinators when they choose the flowers that they visit? And so with they with their little palms, they could then create clean sugar water plants they had no salt and once that had one percent salt added to them and mm -hmm. then they took them from the greenhouse put them back into the field with the nectar replaced and then they just counted how many pollinators would would visit the plants and they found that the ones that had more salt in the nectar uh, were visited about twice as often as the no, uh, low sodium or no salt um, nectar plants and they also di attracted a more more diverse set of visitors, so it really seemed to improve the pollination rate and diversity of uh, pollinators when there was a little bit of salt in uh, in the nectar. And that's, that's really interesting. Like, is is it that a lot of pollinators are just sort of running around tasting random things and then going from there and repeating, or is it that? the salt is somehow because i thought it was mostly you know visual or perfume cues that would be attracting the pollinators from wider to, to get the salt i imagine you have to taste it i don't know that you can smell or yeah i sense salt don't know 
Yeah, I don't know if they can if they can smell it um, because I would not. I mean, you could Will have they tell their friends about it. Maybe you know, bees do that dancing thing. They like it could dance. be the dance. Maybe they know. also just see that there's more insects at a certain spot, and then they also go there because maybe there's a good food oh, source. Oh, it's there. like how you always go to the one that has the biggest queue at the food truck place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. they don't go into the details what makes them actually realize that there's more sodium in there. Um, so the study is called Sodium-Enriched Floral Nectar Increases Pollinator Visitation Rate and Diversity from Carrie Finkelstein and um, from the lab of Nathan J. Sanders. That's published in the, Royal so uh, in the Biology Letters from the Royal Society. And um, yeah, I just, I just like the very hands-on experiment of having a little pump and getting first rid of all of the nectar and then replacing tiny amounts of liquid in so all of the flowers. I wonder how they controlled, I didn't read the full paper, I guess they go through it in the paper, um, how they controlled for their own nectar production of the plant that's then mixing with the artificial nectar that they put in there. I don't know how they Maybe they that. only make the nectar at a certain developmental stage and if you put it in later, it's yeah. maybe something like this that yeah. could dry it out. Dinner. But yeah, so more sold increases pollination, uh, pollinator visits. Um, that could tell us something about conditions that we need in the soil, maybe um, more more sodium availability in the soil, which then is taking up the plants and also increases pollination rates and stuff like that. So we can um, do lots of more experiments based on that knowledge that salt is important to, to the insects and they prefer going to salty nectar. Cool. I have a couple of very quick ones. Um, the first one is just a shout out to you, Yoram. There's a, a very brief report in Plants, People, Planet, which I love as a journal, Plants, People, Planet. Um, and it's basically arguing for the role of millet in the sustainable <laughs> development goals. Um, Yoram and I read for our plant book club a book that was obsessively into millet. It had literally hundreds of pages about how great millets are. As it turns out, they probably are quite great. They, you know, can can grow in places that other cereals struggle to grow in they don't need um that much fertilizer or pesticide they're really hardy and they're really great um and yeah there's different types of millet so this does discuss some of those types foxtail millet finger millet little millet barnyard millet prosso millet coda millet pearl millet teff um and no it's just like discussing millet or broom corn millet i think that was the favorite from the book that we read i think there was so much about this broom Millet. This is a problem, you know, it's a problem with common names. It could be one of the other common name of the other millets. <laughs> um, anyway, so that's that's that. Um, we have a link there if you're interested in millets. We can also give you a link to a really great book if you want to read more about millets. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention really briefly is that the plant cell has, I think, a special issue now um, where it's got a few review articles about emerging model species um, so they have one on Fisco Matrella, I almost said that wrong, um, so moss. Um, they have one on generally diatoms for sort of studying phytoplankton. Um, they have one on Chlamydomonas and they have one on also Brachypodium, so this um, grass model. So if you are interested in understanding more about different models, maybe you study Arabidopsis and you're like, hmm, I've never really understood what the hell's going on with Chlamydomonas, there's some pieces um, there if you want to check them out. Okay, and I have one one more thing that I do really want to mention before we go. So in the American Journal of Botany, there's something that was published just a couple of days ago, and it's just sort of a, a, an essay or a sort of opinion piece, and it's called The Photoaerogens. 
Yoram, what do you think a photoerogen would be? Something that's released into the air when light hits it. That's a shame. Okay, so... <laughs> Um, <laughs> one of the one of the, I'm going to read you one of the sentences here. The term photoerogen is intended to be easily understood. <laughs> I also did not do super well. Um, but basically, it's something that. <laughs> okay, let's let's try this again. The, the problem might be your um, not the word. Um, so photo photosynthesis. So from light. Um, yeah, photo means light. light. Okay, aerogen, aerobic, aerogen. Aero is air. Cool. And gen means generating, making stuff. It's that stuff that makes air when light hits it. Exactly. It's yeah, exactly. They make oxygen with with light. Um, So basically, this is just a discussion about the fact that we do not currently have a term for what plants are as far as all the green things that kind of do photosynthesis. Um, So this is quite weird because we know that like all of the algae and all of the plants, they they actually come from this this common single event where there was a cyanobacteria that was engulfed and all of these green lineages come from that, but they are so diverse. And if we think that we often want to refer to all of those things that originated from this event, everything, but we don't have a word for that. Like we used to call those plants, but now we kind of understand that we shouldn't really be calling algae plants. Um, Mm -hmm. So this person has come up with a new term, which is photoerogens as a way to sort of unify once again, all these, all of these concepts. Okay, so just this definition um, includes so all the things that kind of had the the endosymbiosis, but also the cyanobacteria as well themselves. Um, so blue green algae, um, and yeah, the only I think maybe the only problem is that they might exclude things that have not bothered to do chloro uh, photosynthesis anymore. Yeah. Like you have the parasitic plants that that lost the ability to photosynthesize, and shouldn't that also then include some of the bacteria that do make oxygen, like um, cyanobacteria and some of the weird creatures? I think we talked about last week or the week before. So they're including cyanos, but they're not including um, other weird bacteria. I think is mm-hmm. the um, the decision. And then, so within major lineages of photoerogens, some subclades, I'm probably saying this wrong, maybe I should be saying aerogens, um, some subclades lost the photosynthetic mode of nutrition and therefore do not qualify as photoerogens. And that's things like our monotropa, which is our ghost pipe, so these mm-hmm. parasitic plants. And I'm not sure, I don't think that's fair. I feel like if you had it and then you've like gone to all of the effort to lose it and like steal somebody else's, I think you've, you've kind of earned your place in yeah. that group. Like the exception that pr- proves the rule. Yeah. There's also a bit of a discussion about whether your um your slugs that have these klepto, these stolen plastids should be yeah. considered or not. They should not. I don't believe in them doing photosynthesis. <laughs> you I love that story. Any... You always bring that story up. I'm now at the point where some somebody on TikTok um, is showing the beautiful pictures of them. and say, oh, they actually take the uh, chloroplast and then they live off sunlight. And then I go into the very limited character space of the comments. And I'm like, no, well, actually, <laughs> oh my goodness, there's no you're evidence. Trolling. Really, really okay, annoying. Well, 
Cool. According to Sanders, the the person here, these would also not be considered photoerogens as they are not properly integrated and they're not heritable components of the host cells. So that would also not count. Yeah. But I think it's it's kind of interesting. I'm not sure that this word will take off. I find it a little bit mouthy, but I guess it, it is somewhat logical. Um, yeah. And we do lack of common terms. I mean, we also have discussed it a lot where we're like, this is technically not a plant, but it's kind of in the group of things we're interested in because it does similar things also. Um, And as I just showed in um, the plant cell, you know, they have these emerging model species. Now, the plant cell should theoretically be about plants. That's the general scope, I would imagine. And they've got something about diatoms in there. So I'm not even sure what's... I think what I learned from this is that in biology, it's almost impossible to have very tight and good terminology. Um, You have so many weird creatures out there that whatever box you come up with and label that you put on there, you have some things that might fit in there but shouldn't and some things that should be in there but are not by the classification that you created uh it's i think we can't come up with a perfect way and i think it's interesting to have this new new word and i, I wonder if we find this now in the future in, in some papers or some other discussions uh, for the entire group of things that take light and make oxygen from it um because yeah i that's... think you and i are gonna make it cool i think that's the choice <laughs> okay it's, it's going to be us. You heard it here first. Cat fact. And the cat fact is a rat fact. And it's a rat fact with CRISPR in it even. Um, what? That's very exciting. I, I just, I, I couldn't pass it if I, when I saw my favorite acronym there. Uh, and it's about de-extinction. Do you know what de-extinction is? Uh, when you bring something back from extinction, presumably you get its genetic material or find frozen eggs or sperm or something and then make another animal give birth to it, I guess. I it's, think that's part of this process. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's part of the pro- It's Jurassic Parking, um, uh, in essentially it's you take genes from the, from something that's extinct you take the closest relative that you can find and then you modify it based on the original gene information that you have until it's not the thing that it used to be anymore but the new thing um it's very theoretical at the moment uh, maybe you've heard of the woolly mammoth woolly mammoth story where they try to recreate a woolly mammoth um, from the Indian elephant, that's the closest relative. And here, hmm. th- this is about a study where they um, use gene editing tools like CRISPR um, to bring back the Christmas Island rat. Um, that's an extinct rat and has a sort of living relative. Um, the, now I'm missing the name of the, the other rat, but it's a, it's a rat that's still around. Um, and they found in some preserved skin samples from the Christmas Island rat, they've got some DNA there. Mm-hmm. And uh, from sort of this information of what the genes were like in this rat, they thought, let's try it and change the genes of the rat that we have currently and see the Norway brown rat. And let's see if we can turn the Norway brown rat into the Christmas Island rat. Sorry, isn't the Norway brown rat like the rat, like the rat that we have That's everywhere? That's a good point, yeah. Isn't yeah. that like the problem The problem rat that is just everywhere? Yeah, that, I think that's the everywhere rat, yeah. 
That's true. I think that's the filthy city rat. Okay, so we're genetically modifying filthy city rats to make them into cute Christmas island rats. Yeah. Um, and in the study, they came ran into a big problem, um, and that is reference genomes. Uh, when you have genetic material, um, and you don't, you usually have to map it back to a reference genome when you want to assemble it, unless you have a lot of material and you can run lots of sequencing, and then you can do a, what we call a de novo um, uh, build of the of the genome, so from scratch. Um, but with the Christmas Island Rat, we don't have a lot of material. We only have a few skin cells. So they had to map it back to the genome of the brown rat. Um, that's mm -hmm. a good fit, but only a 95% fit. And that sounds like fairly good. But in this 5% that's missing, that in, in these gene informations that they couldn't properly map on a genome and fully understand where they go, these were things related to the smell and to the immune system. So... Two things that are very critical to the specific survival in a habitat. And um, so they modified these these rats, but the resulting rat, I, I think it was uh, all done in, like, theoretically in the, in the computer. I don't think they actually changed the rats yet. They were just sort of doing proof of concept if that could actually work. And they found that, yeah, you can only be as good as your reference genome is. And this 95% similarity is the same also for the woolly mammoth story. The Indian mm -hmm. elephant is also 95% similar to the woolly mammoth. Um, and I mean, aren't we like 97% similar to chimpanzees? Like, yeah, exactly. That's a, 5% is a big difference. Yeah. Also, like, isn't this rat quite a big rat? I'm looking at pictures of it and it looks like it should be quite uncomfortable for a Norway rat to birth one of these rats potentially yeah I, I I didn't yeah I didn't go into the detail of actually bringing it to life this was all about the genetic information that you have in these animals and um, how difficult it is even if you have quite a lot of the lattice of the DNA in front of you to then actually make the full full animal they said if you would do such a thing, especially for the woolly mammoth, you probably would get an Indian elephant that's more adapted to the cold, but it's not really a woolly mammoth because there's still the critical mm -hmm. bits missing. And this is what they learned from the comparison between these this two is the rats. the fluffy elephant. And uh, there's this quote that's very similar also to Jurassic Park um, uh, where the, the famous quote is the researchers wondered so much if they could if that they forgot to wonder if they should uh, um, and uh -huh. here they say as science it's awesome but it is is it really the best use of the money in a world where we can't even keep our rhinos alive um, I think that's an important issue here as well that while scientifically it's really really exciting to think about how could we bring things back from extinction what do we need what are the tools what are the limitations what are the bottlenecks in there but in the end, is it better to invest money in de-extinction or is it better to invest money in the prevention of extinction? Um, there's always a complicated issue when you talk about these stuff because then some people also, might think, oh, let's just like de-extinct all of the things that we messed up. This rat hasn't been seen since 1903. So like probably its habitats changed quite a lot and it's, you know, it's hard to find these specimens. We extincted a rat like quite recently. Um, it's the first the first animal that's supposed to be linked to climate change. Um, also, mm -hmm. like just on an island off Australia. Maybe let's focus on that little rat instead. We must have more examples of that. Yeah, I, I want to make two very unhelpful comments by looking at the, the. I think it's the right Wikipedia page for your little rat. 
Um, and it lives on Christmas Island, you mentioned. And Christmas Island is really famous for having all these red crabs, like just like so many crabs, like a swarm of, of red crabs. Apparently that's partially because the rat has gone. It used to potentially have a role in keeping crabs in check. So <laughs> it's just like running around the island and eating crabs, which is cool. Um, and the second thing is you should definitely go and look at the the drawings of this rat because it just looks really mad. <laughs> like, it, just looks, <laughs> it looks so angry so, so all like it's got like both anger and disappointment on its face. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe that's why we let it go extinct because it was just like it, always quietly judging us, and we're like, it's just it's too much responsibility, little rat. It looks like an angry, disappointed um, parent. Yeah, <laughs> it really does. All right, I think that's it for our show today. If you want to read more about plants and. On, on the website, we do mostly talk about plants and not rats. It's www.plantsandpipettes.com. And you can reach out to us also on social media. On Twitter, you can talk to me. That's at plantspipettes. On Instagram and very occasionally on Facebook, it's at plantspipettes. There you're mostly going to be talking to me. Uh, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And until next week, I think that's Goodbye. it. Goodbye. Goodbye.